0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a conversation with award-winning author and political science professor William Taubman. Taubman won a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Critics Circle Award for his 2003 biography of Nikita Khrushchev. Taubman has continued his fascination with leaders of the former Soviet Union in his latest book, Gorbachev, His Life and Times, published by W.W. Norton and Company in 2017. I asked William Taubman why he chose to write biographies about these Soviet leaders. Well, the main thing
1: about a biography is to figure out, if you possibly can, your person, what makes him or her tick. Uh, And, of course, the ticking that interests the world is what they did as leaders, in my case, of the Soviet Union. But what makes them tick, to figure that out, you have to go back to the beginning, to their upbringing, to their parents, grandparents to their beginnings of their career. And that's really what I find particularly exciting. It's particularly difficult with Soviet leaders because their lives were pretty secret. People were not going to talk about them in public, especially critically, and they themselves were hard to get to see and to know.
0: Right. How did you get access to him?
1: Gorbachev, uh, I considered sending him a note asking his permission to write his biography. But I decided not to do that because I was afraid the answer would be (laughs) niet, no. And instead, I informed him through one of his close aides, whom I had gotten to know, that I was going to do it, and I asked for his support. And the word came back, yes, he will be supportive. And he was, in a way that no other Soviet leader could have been. This was now many years after the Soviet Union collapsed, I began working on it in 2005, and he agreed to be interviewed. My wife, Jane, who has taught Russian language, literature, and film at Amherst for almost as long as I've taught politics and history, she and I interviewed him eight times for about two hours each, Mm. and we had various other encounters with him as well. I think that was unprecedented. Again, because he is more open and because he was no longer in power and because the country itself, with all of its secrecy, had collapsed.
0: And do you speak the language?
1: Yes, I speak it uh, pretty fluently, and my wife speaks it even better.
0: So you were able to communicate with him both in his language and in English?
1: Well, no, he doesn't speak English. Huh. And in fact, when we had these interviews, I fully expected that he would insist on having his own interpreter there, but he didn't. I also expected that he would want to see our questions in advance, but he didn't. And I think that's kind of tip-off. He is a fairly informal person. And if he decides he can trust you, then he dispenses with a lot of the protective devices that you might have expected to be there.
0: How open was he with you?
1: Well, he was On some things, he was not so open. I I think I asked him once about some defense secrets, and he said, I really can't talk about that. But he was shockingly open when it came to his family. We were talking to him about his father and mother, and I suddenly hear him say, when I was 11 or 12, my mother picked up the belt to whip me again. I was shocked that he said that at all. And then before I could even ask for more, he said, but I grabbed her arm and I pulled it down and I said, never again. And then he continued, and she began to weep. And he said, because I was the last thing she could control and now she could no longer control me. This kind of openness was remarkable, but I have to say it didn't extend necessarily to his own psyche. You know, he could talk about his mother in a way that was so revealing, but he shied away from digging too deeply into himself.
0: So then how did you dig into (laughs) his psyche?
1: Well, you sort of put things together. Um, I observed that despite the story about his mother, he had grown up happy as a child in the terrible 1930s when there was starvation, there was collectivization, there was terror, there was war. The Nazis occupied his village when he was 12 years old for several months, and yet he had a, a mostly happy childhood. For one thing, his mother, although she was the disciplinarian, protected him during the war when his father was away. His father was a wonderful man, to judge by both what Gorbachev said and other people said. His grandfather treated him kindly, tenderly even, Gorbachev said, which is a word you don't often hear about Russian men. (laughs) He had emerged from this childhood with a sense of confidence about himself and a sense of trust in other people, and that in the long run, that was very important for his decision to try to democratize the Soviet Union. Because you can't have a democracy unless you trust other citizens, and you can't try to transform a country which has never known democracy, unless you have a lot of confidence in yourself. So that's an example of how I deduced that. And I can't prove it, but I think it's right.
0: In the book, you interviewed several people, his former classmates, um, people he grew up with. And (laughs) one of the things that struck me is how they talked about he was a leader, even as a kid, that he would (laughs) find his way into a leadership role, and he kind of assumed that that's where he should be.
1: It came naturally to him. It was part of his self-confidence. We did not interview his high school girlfriend, but we came upon interviews others had done. And she tells this wonderful story about how one day he came to a building where she was working, she was editing the school newspaper, and he found mistakes, and he bawled her out. And then they walked into the editorial board meeting, and in front of her peers, he chastised her again. And then as they were leaving this building, he says, would you like to go out with me this evening? And she says to him, how can you do this? First you chastise me in front of my colleagues, and then you ask me out? And he says, according to her, my dear, these are two entirely different realms. This is arrogance. But you have to have arrogance to undertake the radical reforms that he undertook in his country.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing I noticed in, in your book is it it's really fascinating. You talk about how he said that there was Gorbachev before.
1: Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Yes, Chernobyl. So there's
0: Gorbachev before and Russia before yes, and then yes, after. Yes. Um, what did he really mean by that?
1: Chernobyl was, of course, the case where the nuclear reactor blew up uh, in 1987, I think it was. Maybe it was 88. Anyway, the Soviet nuclear power industry had been a kind of sacred cow. It attracted all the money it needed, all the best people, and the regime let these people run it because these engineers and directors assured them everything was fine. And then suddenly it blew up. And when they confronted these leaders, at first the leaders said, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal, but it was. So I think it was a tremendous shock. And it, it shook his confidence in the system itself, if this best protected part of it could run amok. It shook his confidence in the leaders of that sector. And the fact that it was covered up by them in the beginning convinced him that he had to open up not just the nuclear power industry, but the whole political system. Glasnost was the word he used. But he had begun it in a kind of relatively narrow fashion. And after Chernobyl, it became free speech, which was a revolution in the Soviet Union.
0: So first, this is a a gradual kind of um, opening, and then it becomes wider and wider. So how was that viewed in his own country?
1: In the beginning, he was... Highly popular. His three predecessors had been nearly dead men walking. They were all ill, they couldn't function. The system was running down, and suddenly here's this young, vigorous, imaginative, articulate leader. And people loved him. And they loved him even more as he began to democratize. He created the first functioning parliament. He organized the first free elections. They loved that, but then things began to go south because, first of all, the economy, he didn't fix it. In fact, it got worse. And the the open politics allowed people to speak freely, and some of them began attacking him for going too fast. And others began attacking him for going too slow. And before long, he was isolated between the conservatives and the radical Democrats. Hmm. And when the Soviet Union collapsed and he was, in effect, forced out of office, he had few, if any, defenders.
0: We know that he was pretty open with you in terms of talking with you and allowing interviews. What about others that you tried to interview um, during this whole period when now the Soviet Union is collapsing and people on both sides have strong opinions about it?
1: Yes, I interviewed people on both sides. And it's interesting to compare those interviews were the ones that we had while preparing Khrushchev's biography because Gorbachev was alive and Khrushchev was gone. And the difference was that in the case of Khrushchev, people were willing to speak more openly because he wasn't around to hear what they said. In Gorbachev's case, people who were still alive were more careful, especially if they had been friends of his. There was this one instance where I called up on the phone the man who had been the minister of interior and briefly head of the secret police. Mm -hmm. And I said to him in Russian, I'm an American professor writing a biography of Gorbachev. I'm hoping you would have the time and the interest to be interviewed. And he said, I have the time, but not the interest. (laughs) Whereas in the case of Khrushchev, I called up the secret police chief, and his answer was, when I said, I'm hoping you'd be willing to be interested, he said, how much can you pay me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that brings up the whole issue of how do you navigate um, around the, the whole issue of people who won't talk or information that might not be available because people are, and or documents are not available?
1: Well, the big advantage is that they're alive and they can talk to you, and if they will. That is invaluable, the real person sitting across the table from you. When they won't talk to you, in the case of Gorbachev's associates, some of them, fortunately they had written memoirs. That too could not have been done in Soviet times, but post-Soviet they did. There are tons of memoirs, and I tried to read them all. Gorbachev wrote a memoir, a political memoir that appeared in the the 1990s, and then... um, as I was working on the book, my book, I began to ask him more personal questions. And he said, wait, I'm writing another memoir. This is going to be more personal. And and it was. It included things, uh, for example, about how his wife got pregnant when they were at the university and had an abortion. It almost has a kind of sex scene in which he talks about how he was I won't go into this in great detail. About he was rushing off to work, and his wife said, "Let's exercise a little bit." And then he, he sort of pulls down the curtain. Uh, but this is unheard of too for a Soviet leader. Oh, and and here, one this is a funny story. One day, about maybe halfway through the pro my project, we had an interview, and I wanted him to see what my manuscript looked like. So I brought my computer and I opened it up. And I looked at his end of the table. He had a manuscript about six or seven inches thick. And before I could even show him my manuscript, he said, you see, I am writing another book about myself. So you see, you and I are rivals.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I know that you used some of that information from both the first memoir and the second in your book. Yes, I certainly did. Um, Did you have any pushback? from his estate.
1: I did have some pushback because in Moscow, he has a foundation which resembles an American presidential museum. And in this, in these archives, there are a lot of documents. And I got to see a lot of them. But when I asked, for example, to see a set of minutes of his negotiations with foreign leaders, they said no. And I figured out why, because he was going to publish excerpts from them so again we were we were rivals but before they said no they said well okay pick out 20 and we'll see if he'll let you look at them and the answer came back yes so I arrive at the foundation and they say the answer is now no he changed (laughs) his mind
0: (laughs) are you still in touch with him
1: I am indirectly he doesn't answer email I write to him through his associates at the foundation and they write back. I, I sent him a copy of my book. He doesn't read English, but the word I got back from the director of the foundation was uh, thank Bill. That's me, Bill, Bill. I thank him from the bottom of my heart. The Russian phrase is At dushi, which is from the soul. But since I don't read English, I haven't read it yet. And so he'll have to wait to hear my impressions of the book. <laughs> so I'm waiting. <laughs>
0: So he didn't ask to see a manuscript uh, before it was published? No. That's... That was another surprise. Yeah.
1: I did show the manuscript to his English interpreter, whom we'd gotten to know pretty well. And I'm sure that he reported back to Gorbachev. And that was an interesting exchange because the man, whose name is Pavel Palashchinka, sent me many pages of notes correcting factual errors. But the first words of his letter to me were, your research is enormous and meticulous, and your point of view is your own. <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> which I think, which it meant, I'm not going to argue with you about your interpretations, but um, I am going to correct some of your mistakes.
0: Okay, yeah. okay. It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who is interested in writing a biography of a political figure, a major political figure, um, what advice would you have?
1: Well, one of the things that I did first in the case of both Khrushchev and Gorbachev was to try to zero in on things that they did that were important that nobody else would have done in their place. You can't prove that, but you can sort of see it because it seems to me if you can identify such things, you have an invitation to try to figure out the degree to which their character, which nobody else shares, explains what they did. In other words, if they do what others would have done, well, you could say it's the values they all share, or it's the situation that demands the action that anybody would have done. But when you see them doing odd, different things, idiosyncratic things, then it's special. And I think that's the heart of it because if biography is is an attempt to explain character and if you can argue that character explains action and if the action affects the world, then you're really tying everything together.
0: Mm-hmm. And how would you describe his character?
1: I think Gorbachev's self-confidence was central to his successes and his ultimate failure because it gave him the sense that he could change this system despite all the obstacles to doing so. It gave him the sense that he could tame the communist hardliners who eventually tried to tame him. And it gave him the sense that he could ignore or then defeat Boris Yeltsin who challenged him from the other side. And in all of these ways, it first led him to successes, but then the successes Turned sour in the end. It also led him to think he could end the Cold War with Ronald Reagan, the arch conservative American president. Nobody thought that was possible, but he did. And it even helps to explain why he let the Soviet Union's East European Empire go without firing a shot, because he had a vision of a post Cold War Europe in which East and West could come together. And so, in that sense, He didn't need for those countries to remain communist. He thought they would all get along after the Cold War ended. And they did for a while, but as we now know, we face a new Cold War.
0: And here's William Taubman reading from his book, Gorbachev, His Life and Times.
1: These are excerpts from the introduction. Gorbachev is hard to understand, he said to me, Referring to himself, as he often does, in the third person. (laughs) I'd begun working on his biography in 2005, and a year later, he asked how it was going. Slowly, I apologized. That's all right, he said. Gorbachev is hard to understand. (laughs) He has a sense of humor. And he was correct. The world is deeply divided about Gorbachev. Many, especially in the West, regard him as the greatest statesman of the second half of the 20th century. In Russia, however, he is widely despised by those who blame him for the collapse of the Soviet Union. How did Gorbachev become Gorbachev? How did a peasant boy whose high-flown tribute to Stalin won a high school prize, turn into the Soviet system's gravedigger? How did he become Communist Party boss despite all the checks and guarantees designed to protect the system against someone like him. As leaders go, especially Soviet leaders, Gorbachev was a remarkably decent man. Too decent, many Russians and some Westerners have said. Too unwilling to use force when force was needed to save the new democratic Soviet Union he was creating. Gorbachev's wife, Raisa, was a woman of intellect and good taste, even though Nancy Reagan didn't think so. Unlike too many politicians, Gorbachev loved and cherished his wife, and rare for a Soviet boss, he was a committed and devoted father to his daughter and grandfather to his two granddaughters. What then made him feel, after his wife's agonizing death from leukemia at the age of 67, that, as he put it, I am guilty? I am the one who did her in. Gorbachev was remarkably sure of himself, but when asked what he found most off-putting in another person, he answered, self-confidence. Did he feel threatened by other self-assured men, or did he see himself in others and not like what he saw? Alexander Yakovlev, Gorbachev's closest collaborator in the Soviet leadership, thought Gorbachev found himself hard to understand. That Gorbachev was, quote, afraid to look into himself, afraid to communicate candidly with himself, afraid to learn something that he did not know and did not want to know. According to Yakovlev, Gorbachev, quote, always needed response, praise, support, sympathy, and understanding, which served as fuel for his vanity and self-esteem but also for his creative acts. If so, how did Gorbachev react when, within sight of the mountaintop, he had to watch so much of his grand design evaporate around him? Was he, in fact, a truly great leader, or was he a tragic hero, brought low in part by his own shortcomings, and even more by the unyielding forces he faced?
0: That was Pulitzer Prize-winning author William Taubman, reading from his latest book, Gorbachev, His Life and Times, published by W.W. W. Norton & Company in 2017. William Taubman's reading and interview were recorded during the Biographers International Organization's annual conference, held in May 2018 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about Bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.